everyone. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the Lead With Me podcast. My name is Hannah Naomi, uh, and I am coming to you today with a very important message. I was sitting and talking to somebody about how to create an a anti-racist business, how to end anti-blackness within their business. And in that conversation, I begin to think about all the practices and behaviors that businesses perpetuate and how they operate. Uh, and they are the same, some of the same businesses and, and organizations that put out statements saying that they stand with Black Lives Matter that they want to end systematic and systemic racism um, and they want to deal with biases unconscious unconscious biases within their organization and although we could put policy in place which is really important it really starts with the behavior and the behavior is about the mindset and the mindset um, is often accepted by the culture and so yes there is a culture of anti-blackness within many organizations across the country as as many businesses are rooted in whiteness there are five systems that uphold uh intentionally or unintentionally white supremacy uh, within our country and healthcare is one the education system is the other um, the justice system law is another media and racist marketing and media is another money is the fifth so many of those businesses many of those organizations many of those institutions fall under those categories and in order uh, to shift those paradigms and deal with paradigm paralysis you have to do with deal with the culture and the culture of thinking uh, the culture of thinking that is accepted you have to shift those paradigms through dealing with that culture let's talk about even within these organizations how you hire even how you hire. I used to teach uh, a class and do workshops and facilitate different activities, uh, teaching people how to uh, navigate conservative, let's be honest, teaching marginalized people, teaching historically underrepresented communities how to navigate hiring conservative practices and still be who you are and still identify as a black woman or a black man um, or a black trans uh, person uh, how to still have the hold the religious beliefs you have um, and I'll talk about what that means and still be hired uh, because all the hiring practices that we operate with today are around conservative hiring practices are rooted in whiteness um, there's a law that passed in California said we can't discriminate against black women based on our texture of our hair or us wearing our hair natural or in, in locks or uh, in, in dreadlocks or whatever the case may be because that's a real story. That is a real situation that's real. Um, I remember sitting um, at a table I, because I was always in higher education. I've always interviewed in higher education. In higher education, they interview you. Um, there's a panel. There's usually a committee or some type of panel. There's several people there. And many of the panels early on consisted of many white men. Um, and then after that, you see a little bit of diversity and it went into having some Indian folks, depending if it's, especially if it was an academia, if that was to be a mature support or executive director of a center that was is within the STEM, one of the 14 schools dealing with STEM. Student, student affairs was a little bit more diverse. 
Um, but even that, um, I was often in the state of California, the only black woman that was on the panel. They began to kind of have someone who represented black folks on the panel uh, later on, but often it was white males. I was very uncomfortable because I felt their discomfort. I felt their discomfort with, you know, the way I wore my hair. Even when you have the black suit on and you have less makeup on, your cheekbones are offensive, your skin color is offensive, your urban vernacular and dialect is offensive, your name, my name just happens to be Hannah Naomi, but uh, you know, my little sister's name is Davida. You know, your name could even uh, be held against you when people are making decisions on hiring you that hold conscious bias in the culture of thinking King, uh, perpetuates and accepts that you can do these things. How many decisions are made uh, by the people who are allowed to operate in that culture of thinking? To, to hold conscious and unconscious bias historically against Black people, historically against the Tyrones, right? And there's also linguistic profiling. Uh, when you you hear language over the phone and, and you make up your decision, there's a young lady who wears a hijab and she was afraid that she was not going to get hired. There's a young man in his religion that he doesn't shake hands with the opposite uh, sex based on his religion. You know, how can we work to decolonize our thinking and our leadership, right? And those are things that we have to do. Um, if you're saying Black Lives Matter, if you're saying uh, you want to end racism and you want to end anti-Blackness and you want a pro-Black future and a pro-Black society, you have to think about how you operate. Uh, so hiring is a, a big one, how you hire people uh, based on it, uh, the committee that's there, based on their skin color, based on their name, based on their behavior. And really, let's be honest, it's based on your discomfort. It's nothing to do with us. It's really you're uncomfortable with Black people. Let's address that. Let's address, if we do not provide a space for non-black people to admit that they're uncomfortable with black, black people i know that sounds like harsh but many people are ashamed to talk about their first thought and they often operate in their second thought which is safe their first thought is usually their bias thought their second thought is what comes out of their mouth so what i mean by that there was a reading program that I helped to initiate and write. And in the reading program, if the kids did what they were supposed to do, there was a treasure box at the end, full of little knickknacks and toys. There was a young man who chose a pink pony. My very first thought was, oh no, you're a boy. You cannot choose a pink pony. I, I said that in my head, it only was a few seconds, but it was my first thought. My second thought was, yes, he can, right? I checked my own uh, bias and I said out loud, let me see what a wonderful choice. But that's what I'm trying to say is we could allow the space for these conversations. We have to, but we also have to deal with our own issues. We have to look in the mirror and say, I have a bias against 
this type of person against the, and it's rooted in something and I, I'll talk about the, the, the root of how we think um, which is really shaped by our experiences our, our developing our identity growing up something that's maybe happened or something how we were taught something we saw our parents do something we see on TV something that's normalized right and so our, our identity is shaped by our experiences and so when I I, I remember teaching a, doing a workshop at a conference and I remember saying in the conference uh talking telling the same story and I said this really this work is for you the work that the institutions and these organizations provide to help deal with this because they hired you right is one part but really you need to deal with it's a self-reflection it's a everyday self-reflection it really is and so that first thought is quiet and only I know of it. That first thought is something that is quiet. And again, only I know of it. I didn't say it out loud. Um, I didn't do any of that. So what does that mean? What does it mean for you to address yourself? How much time do our, like if you're really committed to changing and dealing with the truth, first you have to admit the truth. First you have to admit that you have a problem, right? With a group of people. And then, you know, there are steps that you can take to, to shift your paradigm. So let's talk about the shifting of the culture, the shifting of the mindset and the paradigm that exists. Some of it, you know, people say, well, we have to be empathetic and empathy is one part, but really we have to do critical awareness and self-reflection. And so what I mean by that is there's this guy, uh, Franklin Covey, one of my favorite books uh, I listen to, um, he, there's this guy on the train. I said, listen to, I listen to a lot of books on Audible. There's this guy on the train and his child is crying. And people in the train is getting mad and the, the man, the baby's just crying. And another man says, you, wants to say, you know, hey, you need to deal with this. You're a parent, your child is crying. But when this man finds out that this, this father with the child crying just lost his wife, the child's mother, and is learning to be a father, the empathy kicks in, but really the paradigm shifts because his frame of reference is now shaped by this person's story, by this person's experience. And then empathy now kicks in to say, you know, how would you really say things like shut your child up? because you feel like this man deserves a chance, an opportunity to, to work, you know, you, to, to figure out how to be a father to this crying child and or whatever the case may be. But let's talk about that mindset shift. Let's talk about that paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift, again, is usually shaped by their own, by someone's own experience, or that paradigm that first that, that this man first had is usually shaped by his own experiences. So I mean by that is your, your identity is shaped by your beliefs, your experiences, good and bad, trauma, how you were raised, all those things play a part in how your identity is shaped. 
And when your identity is shaped, it's it's never complete. Because even now you're listening to this podcast episode and your identity may be shaped. Your identity may be shaped by what you're learning today. And so it's an ever going ongoing process. But a lot of the times we behave based on that. If your parents may have been racist, if you've seen your parents use the N-word in your home, say you didn't have racist parents, but at school you had friends, uh, you know, who who were rude to black people. Say, let's be honest, say you had an experience where you may have been in a altercation with someone black and, and you knew of racial slurs and uh, epithets, but you didn't use them until something happened to you and you put two and two together and say, well, I'm going to use them because now I've had this experience. These are all, we have to be honest with these real life experiences, right? Um, so anywho, uh, so your identity is shaped by those things. And I believe people can uh, unlearn. I think people, I don't want to say you can't unlearn, you can't unlearn it, but I think people can shift their way of thinking. Um, I don't think one way of thinking is permanent. I think what allows the shift is when you suspend yourself long enough to care for other people. This is where humanity kicks in. This is where I have empathy, but I'm a human and I care for another human. This is where I value life comes in. I value the crackhead. I value the people in prison. I value the murderers. I value every life. If you do not value life, you're going to have a hard time shifting your paradigm. I value the racist CEOs that have taken and stolen opportunities from people. I I mean, I value the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Maya Angelou talks about loving the brute and the hero. Because if you don't, then you put yourself in the same category as someone who she says is considered bad, right? Like, like, it's a really good analogy about valuing the brute and the hero. So what I wanna do is offer three really important critical awareness and self-reflection questions that I'm gonna leave you with. So for businesses and for people who operate in businesses or really for leaders, organizations and businesses are just, they're just spaces. These places are led by people who hold positions, who have influence, who can change their organization, provide resources and services and opportunities for people to get the training they need and listen to work like this and bring people like myself in. And there's so many other people that do this work to really help with this work. So this message is for the leaders who really truly say they want a a anti-racist to end anti-blackness business. And so I ask you to ask yourself three really important critical awareness self-reflection questions. So one, how does my own social location, I'm talking about your race, your class, uh, the money you have, identity, religion, and beliefs shape my mindset about the work I do and how does it impact the people I'm around and the practices I use? Let me repeat that. How does my own social location shape my mindset 
about the work I do and how does it impact the people I am around and practices I use? This question is really about doing a self-reflection of your behavior based on any privilege you have or the way of thinking you hold, um, the way you walk through life. And then how does it shape your mindset, your paradigm? Can that even be shifted if need be? And then how does that shape the work you do, right? So if you're a person that approves financial aid for students, if you're a person that approves home loans and banks, if you're a person that serves people in the healthcare system, if you're a person that is a police officer, if you're a person, and you think about everybody has some version of influence to make somebody, some type of decision. So how does it impact how does it how does that shape the work you the mindset you have about and the work you do and how does that that mindset and the work you do right impact the people I'm around and the practices I use so how does that impact your children your partner your family your colleagues and again, the practices you use. What practices do you use to approve financial aid? What practices do you use to help people get home loans? What practices do you use, uh, right, to arrest people or police people if you're police, which I struggle with the concept of policing people, uh, whatever the case may be. If you're a person in, in a juvenile uh, hall uh, facility, the practices you use. This is not about, well, what if somebody did this to me? I'm talking about how does your own social location shape the mindset you have about the work you do and the impact of the people you're around and the practices you use? It's not about what someone else did. It's all about you. Question number two. What more do I need to learn around the things related to culture, power, and difference? What more do I need to learn around the things related to culture, power, and difference? This is all about power, privilege, and oppression. A lot of us do not understand how to use power. A lot of people uh, do not understand the concept of power. And really, true power can never be taken from you. So people can confuse influence with power, right? Uh, and so how is this related to culture, power, and difference? So depending on your culture, you know, whether you're privileged, underrepresented, marginalized, you know, what more do you need to learn? So if you are, you hold privilege, what do you need to learn about those who've been on the sidelines? Marginalized mean are those who are on the sidelines. They're not at the table. They have been muted. They're not amplified. They're denied opportunity. They're denied access. Uh, uh, there have been things that have happened to them to ensure that they do not get ahead in life. Uh, that historically is Black people. The number two population in this country for almost 400 years was Black people. Those numbers have shifted. They've now shifted to the number three population. But you're telling me after 400 years of racist, anti-Black culture rooted in whiteness and all the things that have become barriers to Black success from slavery on up, that culture is not different. You cannot say that's not the truth. I mean, studies have already shown all those different things. So anyways, 
what more do I need to learn around the things related to culture, power, and difference? So education. Now, with all that's happening, people are saying loving people and educating people is not enough. It's a start, though. It's important. Why is that not enough? Because now that you educate yourself, if you do not apply the theory, if you do not apply the knowledge, then you have no power. I often say, you know, people say, oh, knowledge is power. No, what you do with knowledge is actually power. What you do with knowledge is actually power. That's power. Right? And so what more do I need to learn around the things related to culture, power, power, and difference? Uh, Number three, how can I be a more critically race conscious leader? So you have to be conscious of race and those things that have affected people in order to lead and lead this this into anti-blackness and into a a pro-black and anti-racist business organization. And the thing about consciousness is once you are conscious of something, you cannot become unconscious of it. So that means if you are behaving racist and you become conscious of race, right? Then you are making a conscious decision to treat somebody poorly. You know wrong from right. And then at that point, you do not value that life. So conscious, how can I be a more critically race conscious leader? That is the third question to ask yourself. A lot of people don't want to become a critically race conscious leader. Becoming a critically race conscious leader means I now have to sign on the dotted line that I know that racism exists. I know that equity problems and the equity gap and issues with equity are perpetuated by historically what has happened in equalities in areas pertaining to basic needs and poverty and money and health that has exacerbated the equity gaps that exist today. That's why education doesn't want to deal with equity. If you deal with equity, you have to admit to inequality. If you deal with any, if you admit to inequality, then you have to admit that there are different kids that you have to meet them where they are. And meeting them where they are means you're going to deal with kids who have basic needs issues. Education doesn't want to get into the fight about who's hungry and who's not, and who's homeless and who's not. If you deal with equity and 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 admit to inequality, you're going to have to deal with people who have parents who are incarcerated in the in the justice system. If you if you admit to uh, deal with equity and admit to inequality, you're going to have to deal with health disparities within the children that exist. And so what education said, it's not our only, that's not, that, that we can't be the only ones responsible for this. So we want to turn a blind eye to it. And this is why I don't stay just in education any longer because everybody has to deal with equity. Everybody has to meet people where they are. Equity is not just making up the difference at meeting people where they are. It's admitting to the in, inequalities that created the equity issues, which means we have to admit to a issue with race, culture, power, and privilege and oppression in this country and historically what is done to people. And that becomes political. And the old rules of we don't deal with politics in places of business don't apply. 
because places of business have people we serve. And people we serve, we serve with biases. And when we hold those biases, those biases are usually held against people who are in severely inequitable situations. So it all runs hand in hand. So all politics don't go. Old ways, old mindset doesn't go. Uh, demographic de- demographic change requires institutional change. The demographics are necessary change. The people who have been marginalized have gone above and beyond to fight their way to deal and navigate and survive in systems of whiteness and try to thrive. Those who try to become homeowners, those who, who who've navigated through a broken system. Actually, it's not broken. The system was built this way. So it's a whole chessboard that says you can't play but you found a way to play and you found a way to buy the house but let me tell you about the sacrifices that oftentimes people leave their families behind them and their spouse may have made it but their cousins and their aunts may not so for to this this is the message to the black people who made it and often i talk to the baby boomers about this because baby boomers were off off offered offered a carrot around affirmative action they were offered uh to leave the ghettos and the hoods in the late 80s and early 90s. And the ghettos and the hoods were created after drugs were dropped into the communities, the black communities, uh, and destroyed our communities. Our, our uncles became addicts, our aunts became addicts. We didn't know who they were, we couldn't trust them anymore. They did awful things to try to get money for drugs. We didn't know who they were. They completely were changed people because of the drugs they were on. Once, these, once the drugs broke up the family and cr- poverty criminalized the poor and, and, and the ghettos, we had redline, uh, uh, redlining going on and, and no access and opportunity uh, because they criminalized the, those who were on drugs. The penalties were much higher. So you had the war on drugs after they dropped the drugs in the community. And black people who wanted to get out and wanted a better life and, and looked over to the suburbs, this is the grass is green on the other side, and you can't blame them. The hoods were existing. I, my kids grew up in the suburbs because the suburbs is a place, because the hood is a place you went to die in the 80s and 90s. And even if you made it out, it it's the, the, the poverty conscious mindset you had to work 10 times times harder and you, you could say I want to stay here because I want my kids and I want my family to exist around black people but I, I also want a park on every corner and I want really good schools and I want to have access to good health care and I don't want to have to wait 10 hours for the emergency room and so you make a decision to say do I go to the suburbs or do I stay here and baby boomers were offered the opportunity to buy, if you had a good job, you offer good jobs to buy in the suburbs, to leave the hoods. And when our baby boomers left the hoods and created the divide between our own people, which I don't blame either side, we begin to be very judgmental. And then you have the 90s, where you have in LA heavy gang related issues within our communities and you have black people who said those youngins and then here's that generational divide here's a generational divide and it is very day in california affirmative action was put in place by a black man named ward o'connelly i believe his name is 
it started with the UC system and the UC regents and they voted for SP1 standing policy. SP stands for standing policy, SP1 and SP2. SP1 says we could no longer admit students into the UC system based on race or gender and so on. SP2 says we can't hire staff and faculty based on the same thing. The state of California uh, uh, followed SP1 and SP2 and passed Prop 209 admitting the California uh, Constitution saying the same thing, ending affirmative action. So it's like 1996 or so, something like that. Led by a black man. White people say, yeah, go on. Let's do that. That's the 90s. Right, so here we are now where we got baby boomers who have now had some version of access to home ownership, uh, inheritable wealth, but they don't want to inherit it to their kids because we don't longer have the same opportunities. We no longer have affirmative action. It was harder for us to get into college. It's harder for us to get a job than they had. It's harder for us to keep a job. So what it what did millennials do? The older millennials, I think they're called the zennials. I'm from this generation. We decided that we're not going to navigate through your system. We decided that we're going to use our ingenuity and innovation and knowledge and create our own companies and use platforms like Facebook to spread a message. And we became survivors and used our own creativity and our own insight to create opportunities for ourselves. And when we had jobs and we were conscious of systemic issues that didn't allow us to prosper or to thrive, we would either courageously address them like equity issues. We would courageously, uh, so let me give you a good example. The center which I led at the university was very unique. After Prop 209 passed, students from the UC system said, no problem, we got in, but our own community back home, our K-12 students will not get in. They're not college ready necessarily. So we're going to create a, a, a center that's going to help retain us because we have to graduate but we're going to retain ourselves through learning leadership techniques and developing our character education is 70 percent in the classroom 30 percent character development when you go to college and those students decided they're going to ask for funds from the state of california to do student-initiated programming and projects to go back in their community and work with schools and, and uh, different auxiliaries to make sure that those kids are college ready and to help them apply for college. The difference between admissions and outreach work is admissions is all about recruitment and competitiveness. Those who are already ready. Outreach work is about making sure they're college ready for the admissions and the recruitment process. There's a difference. And so the concept are people are more likely to become agents of change about things that have affected them personally, institutionally, societally, and change the, the solutions to the very problems they face. That concept is the millennial concept because we didn't have affirmative action. We didn't have the government dangling carrots in our face to separate our families. 
to, to mess to, to, to already separate us from destroyed communities. And so it's a different generation. But the baby boomers don't have empathy on us. But we admire them because they've lived and seen things we have not. My mother has lived and seen the assassination of Dr. King, of Bobby Kennedy, of John Kennedy, of Malcolm X, of Megger Evers. She's lived to see it all. And she's done the best she could with what she knows how. So we have this love-hate relationship with millennials and baby boomers. Our parents are baby boomers, but they don't want to give us inheritable wealth. Uh, and, and they don't trust us because we're not doing things their way. We're not clocking in and clocking out. We're clocking in and questioning things that are inequitable. We're clocking in and raising, asking hard questions about why am I the only black person here? We're clocking in, doing our job, seeing people make biased and racist decisions and asking why. And it's not that we're all trying to be activists. We all are conscious, not all. Many of us are conscious because we have access to, to knowledge differently than they did. We have access to knowledge in a way uh, that they did not. Uh, the Xenial portion of the millennial population, which is my portion, were born in the year of analog and were blessed to see the evolution of digital. And so we had to do things manually and then we got to see, do things electronically. And so therefore they say we're really smart because we have access to knowledge that way because we know how to do both. My children don't know anything about any type of analog. They don't know how to dial the time. They don't know anything about that. Where when I, that's official experience. I've lived long enough where I've, I've seen both. And so I actually think that the world is sleeping on this population of people because we are your next leaders. We are the ones who are supposed to fix the cracks in the world. We are the ones who desire to do it because we've been impacted by these things, because we have been denied opportunity and access because we, under, we, we know historically what's happened to black people. And so anyways, the whole story between baby boomers and millennials is, is an ongoing conversation. And I would love to do more and bring some other folks on the podcast to talk about that. But how I see it to close this out is there's a table and there's two pieces. And one piece is needed and the other's needed. But yet we walk around like we don't need the other. Even though I have my challenges with baby boomers, I admire them. And I don't think I can do much without them. Many of my mentors are in their 60s or older. I don't know if it's vice versa, though. I don't know if they think they need us. And why would they? They've lived longer than us. I think that's any age group that's older. But I think in order for real change to happen in the black community, or just period, I think the baby boomer and millennial and generational leadership gap needs to heal. And we can do so much. It really is about balance. And someone named Matt Anderson taught me that the other day. It really is about balance. So 
Thank you for listening. I hope this helped a little bit about businesses who want to be pro-Black and anti-Blackness and have a anti-racist business. And I hope talking about culture and uh, mindset and thinking and shifting paradigms and paradigm paralysis and all those things helped as well as uh, historically what's happened in equity and why we address equity with admitting to inequity uh, and how it's all the responsibility of everybody to do this and the power dynamic between uh, millennials and baby boomers and leadership. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to end it here because I can go on and on and on. But this podcast really does not have a format right now. I personally needed an outlet to teach um, because there's so much going on and God it gives me visions and I research and I read and I have so much to say. And so I'm able to wake up and record something and let the world know. If you ever want to join me from, on the podcast or you want to challenge what I'm saying or you want to have a nice uh, conscious conversation or courageous conversation about this, I would love to hear from you. Uh, you can follow me on social media and lead with me on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, as well as Hannah Naomi Jones. I'm sorry, you can fo- follow me at Hannah Naomi Lead as well as Han- uh, Hannah Naomi Jones on all social media platforms, Twitter, and so on. Um, I would love to hear from you. I would love your feedback. Um, so spread the word. Uh, this will grow. This will get better. But for now, I have a message and I'm going to say it. Thank you so much for joining. Have a good one.